Well, I do appreciate that each of you came out this evening, and I know it's not it's not um, a very sexy topic <laughs> to to come out for. It's a it's a emotional and um, touching topic to come out for. And I hope that throughout, I have a little bit of a fog in my throat, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I hope throughout the evening, each of you will find at least a nugget, something that helps you if you are grieving yourself or if you're trying to support someone else who's grieving um, during the holiday season. Um, I would venture to say that all of us as adults have losses by the time we reach any of our ages and that impacts us at this time of year and in all ways. Um, I just, in, um, in a way of introduction, just wanted to say, um, like this gentleman Dick said, I spent years working in hospice and before that worked in hospitals, um, chronic disease hospitals, acute hospitals, um, and now I, along with my, my husband, who's the practice manager, George, um, we co-own um, an outpatient um, mental health um, therapy group um, in Canton and Stoughton with 20 clinicians. So um, I find it very, um, even I can hear it shaking in my voice, um, I find it very moving and touching to be with you this evening to talk about this topic. Um, and feel free at any point, if you want to share something about your own personal situation, your concerns, your pain, your suffering, if you feel that I might or someone else in the room might be able to respond and be helpful. Um, it's, this isn't intended to be a lecture. You know, anytime you want to join in, please do. And again, thank you, and um, stop me at any time when, if you want me to respond to something. Um, so I put this quote at the bottom, <clears throat> excuse me, I put this quote at the bottom of the cover page because I think not only is it an elegant quote by someone quite famous, but I think it speaks to the heart of the matter. Give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak whispers the ever-fraught heart and bids it break. That somehow or another, even William Shakespeare had some understanding that talking out our feelings of grief is somehow comforting. There's something about sharing our pain with other human beings who are compassionate that's helpful. So if you would kindly turn to the next page, and I'm going to read you something to put us in, into the frame of mind of grief. Um, I don't usually make it through this without... Uh, read, yeah. I don't usually get through this too well, but I think it's, um, it's, so, worth, it's so worth all of us hearing it. Um, this was a letter written from a Civil War soldier to his wife um, during the Civil War. You see the, the date. And forgive me if my reading is a little off. I just had eye surgery, so I'm like I'm trying to figure out distance. Um, this one's hard because it's a little it's a little gray. My dear Sarah. The indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Last 
lest, correct me if I'm reading it wrong, lest, lest I should not be able to write again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall, that may f- fall under your eye when I shall be no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not, does not love. I'm oh, sorry? Halt or falter. So I apologize for my eyes. I know how strongly American civilization now le- leans on the triumph of the government and how great a debt we, now, we owe to those who went before us through the blood and sufferings of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is, is deathless. It seems to bind, bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me unresistibly on, on with all the, these chains in the battlefield. The memories of the blissful moments I have spent with you come creeping over me, and I feel most grateful to God and to you that I have enjoyed them for so long. And hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together, and even our sons grown up to honorable manhood around us. I have, I know, but few and small claims upon divine providence. But something whispers to me, perhaps it is the, the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. And when, I, and when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless and foolish I have often times been. How gladly would I wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness. But, oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the gladdest days and in the darkest nights. Always, always. And if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, it shall be my breath. As the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for thee, for we shall meet again. Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the first battle of Bull Run. So not only is that welcome, by the way, I'm Kathy. Thank you. Hi, and your name is? Anthony. Anthony, thank you for coming. Not only is that beautiful, but it's very sad. And I think that it's important for us to be able to label the feelings of grief and sad, the deep sadness that people experience when they are grieving. So let's all look at the first, the first page. There's one of 17. I'm not sure we're going to go through all of them. But I think... I'm sorry, it, just, it says page three on the bottom. Just so oh, my goodness. <laughs> my eyes are really uh, challenged. 
So I want to go over this with you and give you a little explanation of each of these because I think we we throw around the term grief very willy-nilly as if we all understand it and it's a simple um, simple um, concept and feeling. But in fact, it's very individual and it's very complex. So grief is the reaction to all kinds of losses divorce, death, separation, losing a job, dislocation. People suffer a feeling of grief when they lose something that they love, something that's dear to them. And grief refers to the process of the experience of the loss. In a psychological way, it's your feelings and your thoughts they're affected. You're, you think, you pine, you yearn, you, you feel, you obsess. Socially, you're affected by grief. Your behavior is different. You're, you're either, for instance, and we'll go over this later, if you've lost someone, you may find yourself feeling withdrawn, thinking, I'm not as inclined to go out and sit with people who are laughing. I don't want to go back to my bridge group. I'm not up for it. A lot of times people feel a sense of withdrawal. Or they may feel, I can't sit still. I can't be alone with this pain. And they are they're scheduling things up and down, right and left, where they used to be someone who was you know, content to sit home alone. So your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors and physically your health are all affected. We all know stress can give you a headache or a stomach ache. Anxiety can make your chest feel heavy. Grief, you can feel it in your body and everyone differently, everyone differently. But if you, I think if each of you think of times at which you have felt loss and sadness, you can even locate somewhere where you think you feel it or felt it, like here, here, you know, where your pulses are. Grief is a natural and expected reaction to loss. As a therapist, I can tell you probably the most common question ever asked to me, to me by people who are grieving is, when is this going to get over with? When will this stop? How long does this go on? And it's almost as if it's scary because it's so painful. But it is a process. It takes time. There is no, you know, we live in a, in a world, right, where things are so automated. You want to have a lunch. You go through a drive through and they hand you your lunch. You can use a microwave. You can use your cell phone. You can use your clicker for TV. But the human heart doesn't work that way. The human heart processes feelings, and they flow through us, and they, they're like waves. And sometimes the waves make us fall down and sometimes they just make us wobbly um, but it's natural and I think if you're, you feel at all frightened by your grief it's important to remember this is natural this is how we humans go through the feelings of grief um, and it allows you time to express your thoughts and feelings it gives you a period that you yourself can acknowledge I'm grieving I know what I'm going through. Um, and it's unique. There is no set formula. Like I said, people behave differently. People feel differently. Um, each of you are different. 
each of you had different relationships with the people you've lost. Um, so grief is very unique. Um, and it's, grief is continually changing. Um, like I just said, it's often described as wave-like, and people will say, I thought I was doing so well. And then I heard a song, and I was in bed the whole next day crying. That's a very typical piece of the grief process. It doesn't mean you've, got, you've regressed and you're back where you started the day you lost someone. It means that you're still processing these feelings. And for, for some of us with deep loss, it's with us forever. It's just not like front and center, every minute overwhelming. It becomes almost like a, like a rock in your backpack. It stays with you, but you don't think about it sometimes. But if you look in your backpack, it's there. Um, grief is work. And I say that with the utmost seriousness. Grief is exhausting. Anyone you know, yourselves included, if, if you've been through it or going through it, will tell you you're tired, you're fatigued. And the reason is you're doing your regular life, your regular psychological, physical, behavioral life, but you're also grieving. There's a part of you that's doing a whole other piece of work. And being tired is normal when you're grieving. Um, um, the process of grief gives you also time to adapt, to reinvent, to figure out what's new, what's changed, what's different. So though you'd like to rush through it, the time really is nature's way of saying, take this time to figure things out. Life's different now. Um, sometimes it's so much so that it's identity. Um, I will have, and there are tissues if, I, if anyone needs at any point, someone may say to me, I was a mother, and loses a child, and says, am I still a mother? Right? A deep, deep question of identity. Someone loses a spouse and says, am I no longer a wife? That's how I understood myself. So just as two little examples, but I think that we, it's, a, it's an identity crisis of thoughts that grief gives us a chance to process. Um, grief, the grief process helps you to relate to the experience of the death to a context, a context of a new meaning in your life. Life will move forward. It will have new firsts, new adventures, new things that, you're, that have not happened. Um, does anyone, before, I think before I go to any next page, if anyone wants to comment, share anything, question, please feel free to do that. Yes. <clears throat> my problem with my sister mm -hmm. passed. She's from Florida. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't be there. I have a rare brain condition mm -hmm. and I can't fly or anything. And it bothers me when my niece told me on the phone 
that the husband wouldn't let them give her any pain medicine mm. because he thought she was coming back to him. Mm -hmm. And I got so angry. Right, you wanted. I'm still angry because mm -hmm. the husband wasn't there. Abuser, anyways. Mm -hmm. And you wanted your sister's pain to be managed. And they said there was nothing I could do. The niece did. Mm -hmm. But the day she died, I called the hospital. Mm -hmm. I explained she is not allowed in any of the hospitals. They got restraining orders oh, well. on them. I want to know how can I find out if this was the truth. Huh. I'm not going to talk to him and I won't talk to her daughter who's a nurse. Right. Because they both aided her. Yeah. It sounds like a very complicated personal family system. On the last yeah. one. I don't know the answer to your question. There's a possibility you may not be able to find out that there is anyone to talk to. If, right, with hospice, the family members who signed her on are the only ones who the hospice has the right to talk to. And if they're not talking with you, I don't know if you, you'll ever be able to have that conversation unless, mm -hmm. unless there were other friends or relatives. Could I get medical records, maybe? You could certainly request them. I don't know legally if, as a sister, you would be given them. But maybe there's another friend of the family or another distant relative. Nope. You certainly can try. Okay. But I, I can't answer how. Anybody else? Mm -hmm. Can I just? Sure. Um, when my husband was, um, after he died, it was very quick. Um, people kept asking me, oh, is it possible that they, they could have found out sooner? Um, maybe they could have done this. Maybe they could have done that. And in the end... What I, what I had to do was just come to acceptance mm -hmm. that it didn't matter and it's not going to change anything. Mm -hmm. The only thing I could change is my perception or how I dealt with it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it wasn't going to change whether he lived or died either. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was not an easy thing to accept. No. Right, it must have involved a lot of struggle to get to that, that point. Yeah, it wasn't overnight. Of course, right. And I think that what you're describing or you're describing is more common than you would think, right? That where, where the end of life is complicated by not knowing, by not being able to be involved, by all kinds of things. And the two children up here that she had, 
neither one of them want me to talk about Arlen. Mm. They want me to apologize to them. And da-da-da, I, yeah. Well, it sounds like you know how you feel, and you need to stick to that. In the meantime, I'm going crazy. Mm. I have nobody to talk Mm. to. I don't know how bad off she was. I know it was four days Mm -hmm. she was in the pain. And then after my phone call to the hospital, they put her on a morphine drip. Mm -hmm and allowed her to go because mm-hmm. she was infected from head to toe. Yeah. It's hard it's hard not to know certain things. It really is. Yeah. I, th- I think I'm going to move on, and we can certainly come back to your, mm-hmm. your concerns later. So as, as we're all kind of saying in different ways, it's really important to remember how each of you grieve, and grief is unique. Um, right, you'll, I think you said, Chris, was it? Yes. Chris, you said that people kind of wanted you to just get on board, you know, with whatever, you know, position they had on how things went. And it's so presumptuous. Of pe- they oftentimes mean well, but it's presumptuous for a person to, to think they know how someone else should grieve. So this is just um, a list of things that just came to you know come to your mind about uniqueness. First of all, the nature of the relationship with the person who died is unique. No one else was your spouse. No one else was your mother. No one else was your friend. Anything. Just, this is a, that relationship existed only between you and that human being. The circumstances around the death. We've just had a couple of examples. They're all different. There's no two deaths that are alike. Um, even if, you know, the, so the story is Joe fell asleep at the wheel and had a heart attack, or Joe, whatever. There's still minutia. There's still unique circum. Where were they? What happened before? There's uniqueness. Um, and the circumstances surrounding your support system. Right. Some people have a lot of support to fall back on when they feel sad and alone. Other people don't. And that makes their their grief vastly different. Um, And your own personality. Some people, by their very nature, are happy-go-lucky, are lighthearted, are resilient. That doesn't make them any better than some people who are serious and plodding and it's kind of cerebral, and they each grieve really differently. Somebody might be, oh, I want my friends around me. Someone might be, I just, you know, I, I don't want that, want that at all. Um, so your personality is only you, and it's very, very critical to this. Um, and the personality of the person who died. And they need to be respected, especially if they're different than your own, because we all have a tendency to 
feel that our feelings are the true feelings. People's feelings are true. All feelings are true. Um, Other crises or stressors in your life, if you too are ill, if you're financially distressed, if you have other serious issues, problems, that's a different state to be in grieving than if those weren't the case. If you were well, if you're wealthy, if you're healthy, all of those kinds of things. Whether you're a man or a woman, each of us are bathed our brains in different kinds of hormones. We think differently to some degree. I can talk later about how men and women oftentimes, not always, grieve differently. Um, how how the, if there's a funeral, if there's a celebration of life, if there's a cremation, that's part of what goes into your part, personal story of grief and loss. Um, I've heard many people who say, for instance, um, I didn't want my husband or my wife to be cremated, but that was their wish, so I did what they wanted. And afterwards, the person is sitting with that situation, and it's hard for them. Or um, some, I've had people who their loved one, before they died, donated their body to science. And the spouse thought, that's, that's honorable, that's wonderful. A year later, when the person is still in the science lab, the person is like, I can't stand this anymore. We need to bury Joe, but Joe donated his body, etc. So these kinds of circumstances are unique and powerful. Um, and any other unique influences on grief? Feel free again to interrupt. So this, this page, this next page that's in four sections, is very much like the page after it. So I'm going to kind of pick out a few things from each of these boxes. But I think when you go home and you have time in a cool hour um, to look over these, you may see yourself or the people you're concerned about who are grieving different features. So again, there's the physical, the emotional, the social, and the behavioral. It's very, very common to see um, in the first physical part people with their sleep becomes disturbed. Either they're sleeping all the time, or they can't sleep. Or they're waking up in the night, or they're having nightmares. Sleep becomes oftentimes quite disturbed. Appetite. People will, will feel like, I can't eat, I can't stop eating, or food has no taste. So those are just two in that category that's long. In the category of emotions, to the right of that, some people who adored the person who died, adored, feel numb. And they're frightened by the numbness. I don't feel anything. It's one of the many emotional reactions, and the numbness eventually melts, and other feelings come out. People can feel guilty. We all never get it all right, and we all feel regret, and at times of loss, it can be powerful um, and vulnerable. Even if you're, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and a Hulk, this isn't the vulnerability of being physically powerful. People feel existentially vulnerable. 
They feel scared. They just have a sense of fear. And it's very, very normal. And it does dissipate with time. But I, I bring it up because it, it's something my experience as a clinician is commonly people will express to me this feeling of, I feel so vulnerable. I feel so scared. Some of it is based on I always used to go here with, with my person or they drove or they took care of this. or they. Some of it's very actual, but a lot of it is just very emotional and it dissipates with time. In the um, social section on the bottom left, um, I was talking a little bit earlier about being withdrawn or overly um, active um, but also, there's, there can be just like an oversensitivity, um, kind of anything anyone says is wrong. And that's just how it feels. That's okay. That's okay. Um, and in the behavioral one, um, I think I'm going to read a couple of these because they're, they're common and they often, they often feel very hard to hold. People get very forgetful because your mind is preoccupied with this grief. I tell people all the time, be careful. Research shows when you're grieving, you're more likely to have an accident, to fall down the stairs, to have a car accident, to cut yourself when you're chopping tomatoes, just because you're so distracted, to be extra careful. Um, And that's included in that is a sense of forgetfulness just sort of your mind is so preoccupied. Um, Oftentimes, people search for the deceased. People will say, you know, when I drive, I I look in car windows just to see if I see Mary, that kind of thing. Even though they know it's not a logical thing, it's a compulsion, it's a feeling, a need. Um, People dream a lot about the deceased or people crave to dream about the deceased and keep thinking, when will that person come into my dreams? Um, Sometimes people will feel that the loved one is present. I hear that all the time, all the time. Um, um, Wandering aimlessly. I can just just remember when my mother called me when I was in graduate school, I don't know, 30 years ago or whatever, and said that my grandmother, I was in Boston, that my grandmother in New York had died, and she said, pack up, get in your car, and meet us in New York. And I heard her, hung up the phone, and drove to work. And it took me, like, I don't know, some length of time to even realize I was all confused. You can really, really be disoriented from it. Um, Oftentimes, people try not to talk about loss in order to help others feel comfortable around them. I don't want to be a downer. I don't want to keep talking about Joe. People aren't asking me anymore. I shouldn't talk. That can become an issue. And I think it's very individual who you say what to when, but it's not uncommon that people feel very inhibited to talk about their sadness. Um, On the other hand, people can feel a need to retell the story over and over and over. And I can tell you I have some perfectly 
mentally, emotionally healthy people who I see as, a, as their therapist who've lost someone. And for a few years, they are telling me the circumstances of the death very, very often. It's, it's working it out. It's accepting it. It's unloading it. And that's normal. We live in a society, right, that we're... People are saying, you know, it's basically have, have a drink and talk about the weather. You know, this is, this is the real stuff. This is the real stuff. So on the next page, again, the quadrants are there. And I would just have you look at emotionally. It's virtually everything, right? It's sad. It's angry. It's anxious. It's lonely. Fearful. It can be a relief, you may have adored this person, but the relationship was complicated and there was a part of it that you're relieved is gone. And that can feel very guilty or confusing. Um, you can also feel relief if they were suffering. But relief can be a very tricky feeling. Nobody wants to say out loud, oh, I, you know... My mother was so difficult, um, I'm relieved she's gone. But it can be a true feeling for someone who had a very disturbed and abusive, let's say, mother. So it's like, well, how does that person have an opportunity to talk about that without judgment? Um, in the physical department, again, all these very um, basic feelings, fatigue, sleep, eating, also flare-up of chronic conditions. People who have, let's say, irritable bowel syndrome or ulcers or migraines or arthritis oftentimes feel worse. Your body, it's like a total body blow. Your body knows. And this is not permanent. This is during grief, and it does, as I will say, endlessly dissipate. Um, socially, People can feel like the fifth wheel if they go out to dinner with another couple, right? It's very, very hard to, to cope with that. Um, people can feel self-conscious if they feel alone um, and be avoidant. And those are things that therapists, friends, family members who you trust, priests, um, other clergy, people who you trust, you can talk to about things like that, and that can be helpful. Um, and again, behaviorally, um, having to learn new skills. I'll just pull that one out, right? You have to learn maybe the new skill of coping with feelings you never felt before, even, even that alone, and the other ones that are kind of obvious. Or the new skill of balancing the checkbook, which you never did because your spouse always did. Correct. Or pump gas. Or, or do the laundry. Or yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you, very reminds me of one of the tenderest, sweet experiences. Maybe sweet is an odd word. I ran a group when I worked at hospice that was just for men who had lost their wives. And most of the men were in there, in that group were 60s, 70s, 80s. These men spent most of this, the group, week in and week out, asking me questions like, how long do you cook fish? 
how do you know when to change the sheets? One man I'll never forget said, I shower every night before bed. Why would I ever change the sheets? (laughs) But they literally did not have... They were so challenged by just skills. Like, how do I do these things? Um, that that's what they got out of this group was the the ability to to ask these questions and not feel ashamed. Um, so, and and you're right. I mean, for women of certain ages, they were more than maybe modern society, where I think relationships are less gender identified. Who does what? How do you know when to get your car winterized, or do you do it every year, or anything, anything? How do, how do you turn, change how, the oil? Right. How do you hook up a TV these days or a phone? Okay. So, I, because my eyesight is so lousy, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask George. Would you like to read this? This is, this is another. This is an excerpt. I don't know if any of you ever read Madame Bovary. It's one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read. Um, And it was originally, I believe, written in French. But, and this is a little hard to read. um, It's a little, you'll have to kind of go slow and get it as you read it. But it's an excerpt because sometimes when we're grieving, we feel crazy. We feel like we've lost our minds. And I think that Flaubert captured not only that sense in this, but he also captured, if you listen to it, how grief dissipates and how people can be helpful. It's really loaded. Okay? He had heard of his loss and consoled him as well as he could. I know what it is, said he, clapping him on the shoulder. I've been through it. When I lost my dear departed, I went into the fields to be quite alone. I fell at the foot of a tree. I cried. I called on God. I talked nonsense to him. I wanted to be like the moles that I saw on the branches, their insides swarming with worms, dead, and an end of it. And when I thought that there were others at that very moment, with their nice little wives holding them in their embrace, I struck great blows on the earth with my stick. I was pretty well mad with not eating. The very idea of going to a cafe disgusted me. You wouldn't believe it. Well, quite softly, one day following another, a spring on a winter and an autumn after a summer, this wore away piece by piece crumb by crumb. It passed away. It is gone. I should say it has sunk. For something always remains at the bottom, as one would say. A weight here at one's heart. But since it is the lot of all of us, one must not give way altogether. And because others have died, one to die too. You must pull yourself together, Monsieur Bovary. It will pass away. Come to see us. My daughter thinks of you now and again, do you know? And she says you are forgetting her. Spring will soon be here. Pretty powerful. And also, you see the friendship. You see this person reaching out to this other person with compassion and patience. And I think that that's... 
I, I wish if I could if I could give give that information to everyone in the world, sort of reach out to people who are suffering, people who are grieving. We all, even if you reject it, if I don't want it, leave me alone. On some level, we want kindness, and it's 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 the cure. There's no real cure, cure, but it's it's what life can offer us. Thanks for reading that. Okay, so now we move in. Can I move a little forward to a little bit different topic? Again, reach out to me. Chime in if there's something you want to add. The reason I'm doing this at this time of year is because this is the time of year that many people um, are so full of emotion to begin with, so full of memories, so confused. I'm so sad now. What do I do? I don't want to do the same thing. I do want to do the same thing. It's really a struggle for many people. And I think beginning now, because we're not at Thanksgiving yet, we're not at Christmas, we're not at New Year's, gives you a chance to step back and think of these things. How can I spend the holidays? What seems to seem to be my options? Because people very frequently will they'll come into my office and they'll say, I have to write 150 Christmas cards because I've done it every year, but I can't even write one. And it's almost as if the person didn't even think they don't have to write 150 Christmas cards. That's why I think this is as simplistic as this paper is in front of you right now. I think it's an important proclamation. Think now. Give yourself choices. Give yourself options about how you want to go through the next couple of months. What would be easiest? Excuse me. Who would be easiest to spend the holidays with? And remember, that's your privilege to make these decisions. What traditions do I enjoy about the holidays? Right? Did this woman really want to write those Christmas cards anyhow, or was that just you know an obligation? What traditions do I want to keep? And some people will... I'll have to say something after. How would my loved one have liked me to celebrate the holidays? That's a good question to ask, I think. And what tradition might I start to memorialize my loved one? People, right, again, it's unique. I know people who will say, I can't bear Thanksgiving. John died right before Thanksgiving. I can't bear it. Every year now, that week of Thanksgiving, I go to Florida and take my kids to Disney World. We skip Thanksgiving like it doesn't happen. Other people will say, we gather round, we light a special candle for, for Jimmy, we all in advance write an essay or a piece of poetry we bring, and before the meal, we light a candle and we recite something. And everything and anything in between. But I think it's very fair to yourselves to think I can construct to some degree what I want to do or don't want to do for the holiday. Especially if you're tired from being grief-stricken. And everyone expects you're the one who always makes the cookies. Well, maybe this is the year you don't. 
you're not, you're not, what's the word, um, demanded of to do what's too much for you or what you don't want to do. And this is not, like this holiday season will be different than next holiday season. But give yourself, you're entitled, give yourself the right to make decisions. So this is, this is another, another level of that, of what we're talking about now. The holidays are upon us and they can be an especially difficult time for many people after the death of a loved one. What was once a happy and exciting time may now be a time filled with sadness, heartache, and fear. That may truly be what you're feeling. Christmas lights, not bright one bit. But if you feel that way, that's, why, that's perfectly okay. If you're struggling, wondering how you'll manage the holidays, then you may find the following suggestions helpful. Okay, how about if we go around the room and each person read one of the bullet points? I think rather than me just blathering on. Would you like to read the first one, Beth? Okay. If you're struggling, talk to your family and friends ahead of time about holiday arrangements. Mm -hmm. I would say what you have decided. Mm -hmm. I decided Thanksgiving and Christmas I'm going to do what I want you to mm. for a change mm -hmm. and not really being mean to somebody mm. else but I'm tired of taking care of everybody else and the hell with me. Okay, sounds like you've thought about it. Mm -hmm. Good. Can you read the next one, please? Are we on page eight now? I was skipping. Nine. Nine, Nine and bullet point number two. Okay. Uh, confide in someone who will let you say the words that are bottled up inside you. A family member, a friend, a clergy person, a counselor. And I do think that's important, right? You don't just have to act through the whole holidays and perform as if all is well. Find a confidant, someone you can talk to. Can you kindly read next? Make some changes if you think that would be easier. Truly, it's okay to make things easier, especially for people who don't usually allow themselves to make things easier. A lot of us are at fault for that. It's okay. Would you read, please? Give yourself permission to feel sad and to cry. Mm-hmm. Give yourself permission to enjoy yourself without guilt. That's also a pretty tricky one, right? But it's, it's true. You can also be happy. You can have fun. Lower your expectations about what needs to be done. Be patient with yourself. I actually find this next three almost like three parts of the same thing to me. Um, be patient with yourself. Find a way to soothe yourself. Take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Just being sort of being kind to yourself when you're in, when you know that you're hurting, you're in a hard place. Mm -hmm. We call that like self-compassion. Mm -hmm. 
which is very hard for most of us, for lots of us. We're all, you know, most of us are taught to take care of other people, pay attention to the needs of other people. But there are times when taking care of your own needs is really front and center and fair. I'll just read the last three. Be assertive. If you don't want to do something, say so. You can be gentle about it. You can be sweet about it. You can say it in an endearing way. But you can decline an invitation. You can ask for an invitation. You can say what you'd like. Remember your loved one. Talk about what they enjoyed about the holidays. Do something to honor your loved one. And I think everyone's different about that, but... I know people who make a donation in honor of their loved one. They plant a tree in honor of their loved one. They, um, um, they volunteer as an act of honoring their loved one. Sometimes doing something with that sort of feeling of honoring them can be very powerful and also very remedying. It makes you feel better. So the next page continues with the holiday-specific sort of stuff. Um, So holidays are about lots of decisions, usually, um, for us adults. Um, And as much as it hurts, it's helpful if you plan ahead. So these are some more similar things that kind of I got nitty-gritty about them, but I think they add up to what we have to think about, to accept or decline party or dinner invitations. Legitimate, and it can be hard, and you may want to talk that through with someone. What about cooking and baking? Again, if you are usually the hostess or everyone relies upon you to cook the ham or whatever it is, you might want to consider giving that to somebody else this year. Um, Should you decorate your house? What would be best for the children? What would be best for you? What to do about traditions? Forget them for this year. Try them. Develop new ones. Should a visit be made to the cemetery that day? How will I ever get out of bed that morning? So we're talking all the way from something that seems very superficial about should I bake or cook to really worrying am I going to be able to be okay that day and it's, it's all of one thing it's just on a spectrum and you can be here one minute and there another minute and back and forth and back and forth but I assure you that the feeling of I don't know if I can get out of bed if it doesn't last weeks and weeks on end is normal it's just, just how we are how we're built so the next one is a little bit of a chart you can take home with you and to help you maybe think through these things. There's room at the bottom you can add others to, but I try to think of tasks um, that people have around the holidays, um, exchanging gifts, sending cards, attending certain religious services. And then I have paragraphs you know, here, or um, what do you call it, um, columns, First of all, think about, did you enjoy doing this, right? Back before you had this loss, did you like going or not? Are you doing this, um, are you up to doing it this year the same way? 
Would you like to do it, but with changes? And what type of changes? This is not not at all um, a bad idea to think about, even beyond the holidays, with a lot of things in life. I think it's right. Oftentimes we act in ways because we're accustomed to, it's expected of us, we'd be ashamed if we didn't do, but we, we have a right to think about these things and make choices. Okay? Okay, so this, this next page is something that is included for those who are grieving or those who are trying to help someone who's grieving. Or so if you say to somebody, why go seek help? What's the goal of it? What will happen? What do you hope for? So the first thing is, it increases the reality of the loss and work through the denial. There's part of all of us. You know how when you pick up the phone and you get bad news, what's the first thing people say? Anybody jump at that? Oh, no. I can't believe that. Right. Oh, no. I can't believe it. No. Not really. That's denial. That's what our minds do to protect us. It's the nor- And for some people, the reality of the loss, I must tell you, can take a, a very long time. And I have clients who the spouse died or the child died. I'm thinking of specific cases a couple of years ago. And they will still say... It's still not real. I still am trying to remember the day the doctor gave us that diagnosis, let alone that the person died seven months later. And sometimes what I think happens, when the loss occurs, the mind, this denial piece, kind of puts freezes us. And sometimes what people will say is, a year later, they'll come to me, Kathy, I feel worse now than I felt a year ago. Am I going to lose my mind? And I think what happens is you're frozen to a certain degree for a while. And then you start to defrost because your mind kind of knows you can handle it, even though you don't feel like you can, and the feelings surface. So don't be frightened if down the road you have tougher patches. I think it's because your mind knows you can take it, and it's still working it out. The goal of care, sort of like that Shakespearean quote in the beginning, is to give you an opportunity to express your pain, sadness, and fears. Really those deep, deep feelings. Find words for them. Um, And all the what-ifs, like you started out, you spoke earlier, you know, what if, if only, you know, people were saying to you about, you know, you knew or you didn't know or this or that. And I think we all live, even in the most perfect of situations, with what if. You know, what if we had eaten less McDonald's? What if we had spent more time by the seashore and breathed in good air? What if, and you can go on endlessly, what if I had been nicer? You know, what if... uh, what if we had gone sooner to Dana-Farber? It, the, everyone lives with what-ifs. And if you take that as a, a matter of true fact, it may help you with your own what-ifs. 
Nobody gets out without any what-ifs. Care, the kind of care we're talking about for someone who's grieving, allows and validates an element of depression. And of course, if it's too if it's too severe, if it's disabling, it needs to be treated. But there's the feelings of depression that the world is colorless, that it's sad, that it's that you're downcast and things are are tasteless. That comes with this. It gets better, but it's part of it. And to help find. And this sounds corny, and I'm the least corny person probably I think I know. I don't know, but help find a good buy and learn to live without the one you lost to somehow or another put to rest as many of those what-ifs as you can. You used the word acceptance earlier. To somehow or another, this is one of the goals, to be able to accept it happened, it is what it is, and to learn to live with it in a way that isn't as, as tormenting. And I'm not saying that any of this is easy work. Trust me, I, this, is, this is hard work. So this is, if you were to be the person helping someone else who's grieving, these are some suggestions. Um, and if you're the person who is grieving, it may help you to ask for someone else to do this for you. So we're going to go around the room again and read these. And George, why don't you start this way and we'll read them. Listen in a supportive manner to individuals' concerns. And I may, sorry to interrupt the flow, that's probably the best thing you can do for anyone to listen. Just listen kindly. Just listen with your heart. Help the person in most cases to recognize that their emotional reactions are natural, normal, and to be expected. Help individuals to understand and recognize the wide range of reactions to death, such as numbness, frustration, confusion, anger, anxiety, sadness, and feelings of helplessness. And that, that's really important. I can just say from the side of, again, of, of a clinician, people will often say, my kids want me to be over this already. My kids are tired of me, me being so anxious all the time, to use one of them. Those adult kids need to kind of get on board if they can. This person's feeling these feelings. And it takes time. It's normal. And the helping is to be able to say to that person, it's okay to feel anxious. It's okay. It's normal. It's going to take time. It's okay. You don't have to rush out of that feeling for my sake or, e- or even for your sake. right? We all wish no one felt pain who we care about. But when they do feel pain, it's important to just honor it assist individuals to draw on their own strengths and develop healthy coping mechanisms that permit them to gradually resume their pre-bereavement level of functioning. Right. So let's say, let's say someone loves flowers and there's a flower show in Boston or someone is a photographer 
and you say, oh my goodness, why don't, it's a beautiful day, maybe let's take your camera and go take some pictures. Trying to think of what, are they, what does this person like to do? What, what do they do? What makes them happy? They may decline and decline and decline until they're ready, but they also at some point may kind of grab onto your hand and say, you know what? I actually do love to watch the, what do you call those boats in the Boston Garden with the pedal boats? Oh, the swan boats. The swan boats, right. I'm I'm just thinking of a woman who, these are things that come from real examples, who grieving, 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 and then I think it was last winter, she said that one of her friends remembered that she used to love to go to, to, with her grandchildren, and they went in the dead of winter just to see them parked in the, in the pond there, and that it made her feel a sense of herself again. Like, that's something that moved her. Sensitively and caringly help individuals to grieve their losses in their own unique ways. Which is oh so true, oh so true. Also, I don't know if it gets anywhere else in this packet, but doing, sometimes people will say to me, people ask me, people who are grieving, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And they're like stumped. I don't know how to answer it. Sometimes doing very practical things for people without even asking, raking their leaves, buying them a bag of groceries, Picking up, saying, I'm going to the dry cleaners, picking up their dry cleaning, um, running an errand for them, lightening their load can feel so supportive, so kind, and so helpful. I think we all can kind of close our eyes for a minute and remember when someone was kind to us and how good it felt. Just doing something so simple. I'm remembering having surgery, and when my husband had to go back to work and the kids were at school, a friend was in my house vacuuming my living room for me because I had back surgery, so I couldn't. And I remember being tearful out of appreciation. It was just so kind. So those sorts of things mean a hell of a lot. So the heart of grief counseling, if you're being counselor to a friend or hoping to get counseling from a friend, is validation that what you feel and what you're going through are real and okay. Grieving individuals need reassurance that what they are experiencing is normal. And if you question whether it's normal, and we'll get into that later, it's always wise to ask to see a professional if you're concerned. Has my grief become depression? Has my level of anxiety become debilitating? We can talk later about that. But in general, if you're just going through these normal levels of things, they're part of it. So this is a um, a Chinese proverb. I don't know where or when I saw it, but I thought, boy, they got it right. Suppression, meaning putting your feelings down, shutting them down deep down in there, leads to momentary relief. I'm not thinking about it. I'm talking about the, uh, the, when I was driving, I went on exit 14, and I went on exit 13, and I stopped at the hot shops, and this and that, as opposed to I was on my way to a funeral, and I was really sad. Suppression is momentary relief and permanent pain. 
if you just push it down, it doesn't disappear. It stays in there. Feeling, on the other hand, being sad, shedding tears, drive, don't cry when, you tr- cry when you're driving, pull over, but crying and feeling sad at the moment is painful, but it lead, leads to permanent relief. So that's, that's a wise and true... And permanent relief, again, does not mean you ever stop missing someone or you stop feeling a piece of your heart is a bit broken. But it means that you, it no longer is, is, is everything or ruling your days. This is mostly for therapists. Um, this page of contrasting grief and trauma um, but I'm just going to, we, since we have the time, I'm just going to briefly go over it with you. Um, a traumatic event, and the death can be a traumatic event. Uh, I'm in a, a terrible car accident. Um, um, I mean, obviously the loss of someone is traumatic in itself, but I mean trauma in a way that has almost like a grand kind of quality to it. Though again, every loss is, has its own little bit of trauma or kind of trauma. So cognition means you're thinking. When you're grieving, you're yearning, you're focusing on the lost relationship. If someone is, in, is really in trauma, they're focused on the event. That's what you would be hearing about. The car accident, the car accident, the car accident versus I miss Bobby. And that's, that's a clinical distinction that I don't know if it's important for you to know, but it's maybe interesting. Reliving. When you're grieving, you have these intrusive like confrontations with what's absent. You miss this person. You miss eating dinner with them. You miss going to the park with your best friend and you know, talking about the grandchildren. When you're reliving trauma, it's in this intrusive reliving the event again, the event of the, the death. In this case, we're talking about death. Um, affect. Affect means feelings. When it's a grief response, you're sad, there's yearning, and there's separation anxiety. You feel wrenched. You feel torn apart from this person. Or, like I said earlier, it could be a job, it could be a friendship circle, it could be your church group. If you move away, you could feel that yearning, that separation. When it's trauma, it's usually really revolves around fear, horror, trauma, and anxiety. It has that quality to it. Belief system. When you have a grief response, the thing that comes out often is, how can I go on? Who am I? Right, this identity thing, and how do I figure this out? How do I make sense out of my life now? How do I make it okay? When it's a traumatic response, it's why did this happen? Can it happen again? It has a frantic kind of quality about it. Memory, um, the grief response, approach, and reminiscing. You kind of go back and forth of like, I'm thinking about it what happened, what's going to be, and thinking about what happened. It has this kind of back-and-forth feeling. When it's 
um, trauma, it's like really avoiding thinking about it, or you can't stop thinking about it, intrusive. Those are kind of similar, I must say. And the last one in symptoms, a grief response feels depressed. A trauma response feels agitated, aroused, kind of on guard, um, and very anxious. So those are, I don't know if they're beneficial to you or just interesting, but I wanted to share those. So this one, the next one is, I wanted to say, and I don't mean to be sexist, but I'm almost 62 years old, so I come from a universe where we, the literature that I look at, like these, these like Kenneth Doka's writings that I took this from, are people of my generation, our generations. Um, and I think I see to some great degree that there's, there's some truth in these. Basically, the idea is most, and this is not all, right? Not all, everybody is unique, but the sort of like overviews. Most women are considered, will go into intuitive grievers, and most men are instrumental grievers. And one of the things that's common in a couple, let's say a couple loses a child, and they'll come into therapy, and the woman is sobbing, and she's saying, damn it, I want him to sit and just cry with me. I want him to to beat his chest and cry with me. And all he's doing is, every he comes home from work and he's outside working on the yard. He's not even grieving. He is. They're just doing it very differently. So the first paragraph is instrumental grievers, which are more likely men but can be women. They tend to think and problem solve ways of coping with the experience. All right. Such and such happened. I'm gonna I'm gonna build a new a new garden in the backyard. Um, they push aside feelings to cope with present situations. I, I'm not gonna let myself be overwhelmed with these thoughts. I have to get to work. I have a company to run. They choose active ways of expressing grief. They're at the gym 20 hours a day. Um, often are reluctant to express feelings use humor to express feelings and to manage anger, Um, may only express feelings in private, seek solitude to reflect and adapt to loss, may not do well in a support group. Um, One of the not-so-funny, funny funny things in, I ran bereavement support groups for, I don't know, well over a decade, is often in the groups, the men will flirt with the women. And the women are appalled. They're like, I am here because I just lost the person I love most. What are you doing? And the man is doing something because that's what he does by his very nature to feel better. If you understand the sort of, you know, strangeness of that, um, he doesn't mean to be offensive and he's not being insensitive. He's acting. He's doing something. He's not just sitting and crying like she might be. So women tend to feel their experience intensely and benefit from expressing their feelings. We all know women's groups and going in and out for coffee and talking it out. Openly, right, guys will go to the game and have a beer. And again, I forgive me for being so... Sexist, but I just want to give you give you these because people often get especially get upset with each other if they're not grieving in the same way. 
Um, uh, women often express anguish or sorrow by crying. Um, they're not afraid to seek and accept support and comfort from others. Um, they're more patient than men usually to feel pain. That like the men will want to start dating a lot sooner than women. I've discovered in cases of loss of spouse or or partner. Um, Women are often more psychosomatic, become physically exhausted or anxious, and may experience prolonged periods of confusion uh, and problem concentrating. I think we see ourselves in all of these things, or we see people we know. Um, I may add, not, not being trite when I say this, I'm a woman. Uh-huh. I, I went through this list, I went to check off two for what you call men, and all the other ones. Well, well, I'm glad you said that because it proves the point that it isn't, it isn't in concrete. The men are like this, the women are like that, right? That, that you relate more to the, to the intuitive grievers. You can't give what you haven't got, you know? Mm-hmm. Which of the two of the things did you not relate to? Up to top ones. When I say I, I did relate to them, is what I'm saying. Oh, out of the to top only two on the top. Of right, you, you related to the only two on the top, and general, generally categorizing as men. Yeah. Yes. I went to them, and only two of them could apply: use humor, or seek solitude. Uh-huh. times. But every one of the last ones, yeah, women's ones, are very vivid. Right. I'm glad you said that, and I don't doubt that for a second. Um. These are just generalizations, but for sure, right, as we started in the beginning, we're all individuals. I just, this, this is just often helpful with couples who are different and trying to make them realize we all, we all do it differently and sometimes, right, sometimes we may, may do it more similarly. So complicated grief. All grief is complicated, but complicated grief is a, is a um, mental health term. And complicated grief means grief, I would say grief that really benefits and needs clinical help. Um, so the issue with this is intensity and duration. If I meet someone who says to me, my my boyfriend died five years ago, and I still have his toothbrush out. I still have his dirty clothes he wore that day on the floor where he left them. Um, I go into that area of the room every day and sit for three hours, and this is years later. That's complicated grief. So if you understand what I mean, intensity and duration. If someone says to me, I saved all my husband's sweatshirts and I saved all of his um, neckties and I put them in a certain corner of the armoire and it's three years later and they say, I look at it for a minute every day and it brings me happiness, that's fine. It's intensity and duration kind of thing. I'm trying to think, if anyone ever has any self-destructive impulses that requires um, professional assistance. Um, If people become phobic, um, 
or you know scared and and they're beha- they really can't um, kind of function properly. That also. Um, I th- and the pos- the possessions intact is that example like people who will not touch or move anything everything for years that to me says they could benefit from some help but it is not uncommon that people will keep clothing keep objects some things many things and they're part of them and that's fine it's fine I know when my uh, my mother died, um, I kept we were very different sizes for clothing, so a different taste. So there wasn't clothing that I could inherit, but I kept all her scarves. And every day, for the longest time, I would go in just to smell them, just to smell her perfume and the way she smelled. And I remember the day that it wasn't there anymore, and it was so sad for me. But things like that that people do, that's we're we're animals, you know, those things those things are deep. Um, you see, I think we may we are actually at the end of the prepared um, talk. We have fifteen minutes left, and I'm wondering if anybody is sitting here thinking about something that they might like to share. Or ask. Yes. I'll share. Um, I'm not here because of my husband, but um, when he passed, I um, went to Old Colony Hospice for, I think it was twice, um, to three bereavement sessions Mm -hmm. in a row, like eight meetings each. And then after that, um, somebody suggested going to a widow-widowers group, Mm -hmm. which I did, and it helped. Mm -hmm. Um, But what helped the most was the group that, um, I never sought individual counseling, but this, it was a group at Stonehill uh, that no longer exists. Mm -hmm. and I went there for like two years, mm-hmm. and it really helped me in a group situation with other widow and widowers. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that's what what worked for me, just having that support. Mm-hmm. It's good to it's good that you were able to to find that and to share that with people. Yeah. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem to be as many groups around anymore. I know. Yeah, they're hard to find, and a lot of them are short term. They're like eight weeks. Right. Right. And to me, I that needed something more. Right. Do you remember? I worked at Old Colony. Do you remember who led your group? It was a young girl, probably. Well. Why? Quite a while ago, and she was probably around forty, and that was in ninety-five. Did she have an Australian accent? No. Okay, then I don't know who it was. Oh, but yes, being in a group, I agree with you, is often an immense support. 
And it's good that you did it until you... Was there a time when you said, I'm done with this? Like, I, yes. I got what I needed? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt... One day I woke up and I was happy. And I still went back mm -hmm. for support, but um, it was, that was the, you know, about a year and a half, two years later, mm -hmm. it was time for me to right. move on. Happiness kind of just intruded on your grief. Well, I was kind of surprised, mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Anybody else have a thought or something they'd like to share? I was at my job just the other day and I broke down mm -hmm. crying and everything and she said, um, you have to try to not do that. Mm -hmm because of all my medical conditions. Mm. But I told her, I said, it feels good to cry mm -hmm. and get it out. Very much. Mm. I, you know, yes, maybe I I'm in more pain and mm -hmm. this and that, and the other people that I mm -hmm. know up here, they're all sick. Mm -hmm. I got sick too, and I think that's another side effect mm -hmm. of grief is your immune system's way down. For sure. Mm -hmm. And yes, you're right. I, I, I'm sure your doctor was being protective, but shedding tears with someone who's compassionate and listening or shedding them alone is kind of why we have tear ducts. We're built, we're built this way to do this. It's good to get it out. It does. You know, I mean, if you're crying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would disagree, but tears are good. I mean, it's yeah. new to me. Mm -hmm. But uh, you, I can't sleep. You know, but when I can't sleep, I think, when I think, mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. And when I think of Chloe, Chloe, but uh, it's all right. I know I'm not eating right, so mm -hmm. I can take it on go good days restaurant, Westbridge water, and get some protein and some vegetables. And I go out of a turkey dinner, and I sit there and I start eating it. I get about a third of the way through it. Something's wrong. You know, she's not there. Mm -hmm. You get to be able to go, and yeah. But tears, tears are good. I, I don't apologize mm. for one tear. You've earned, you've earned the right. Right, loving someone, you earn the right to, sh to cry over them. Uh, there's nothing shameful about it. She mm has -hmm. two days, you know. She probably was part of taking care of your husband, who's was 95. It's about when my wife was, my husband was there, about that same time frame, but she loved it. We're sort of comfortable with death. I mean, uh, comfortable in the sense of accepting the reality of it. Uh, but uh, it doesn't mean we're, we take it lightly and don't realize that we're right. a lot of pain. Marilyn used to go to every funeral. All the people, she, she went at the end of the last three or four days a week of their life. And you get attached to them. Mm -hmm. you know? She'd go to the funeral. She knew what any funeral bow was on the South Shore. I would drive up. <laughs> but but anyhow, mm -hmm. what I'm saying is tears and blood. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, 
this right. is and it's so it's so it's so respectable and it's a privilege to feel that someone loves loved you and loves you that much and it's just it's unexpected you never know what's coming right it's just something triggers it yes you know, I was in the dentist today and mm-hmm. you start having a conversation and, yep uh, but it's very unexpected and we have three daughters who mm-hmm. are very supportive uh, but tears are good is what I'm trying to say here. Mm-hmm. And, and you're correct it's, I would say grief is predictably unpredictable like you, you can be sure you you don't know. You think you're having a great day, and bamo, something just touches your heart. I hit. I had the wagon hospital for about four days a short while ago, and which uh, uh She was a brave girl, you know, but I'm a good smile. I can't even remember why I was there. My my brain is mushing up. Mm. Uh, Oh, I, I thought I was having a stroke, you know, or lip and numbness, mm. and so they had to keep me for a few days. Nurses, aides would come into the room. They said, oh, I remember you. I, I took care of you. No, you took care of my wife, and I was with her. Mm. So they recognized us on that, the cardiac floor, the, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, just nothing, mm-hmm. nothing simple things, just trigger something. Yep. And, uh, and I think I'm where I should be. I don't know. You know just, it was October 7th, so it was very recent. Oh, very but, recent. Uh, I think I'm where I should be. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. That is no, so recent. Thank you for that. Uh, how, how do you judge whether you're progressing or not progressing? But uh, It sounds like you're doing... I'm, I'm not ashamed of... No. Uh, no. Not at all. Your feelings sound very loving. It's yeah. So she's my honey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a people in the hospital said, oh, you used to call her your honey. Aww. Well, I did. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's a compliment, you know. In any event, enough of that. But, no, thank you. Uh, thank you. Tears are good. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, I think I'm just going to say thank you to all of you for coming out tonight and bearing with any of the repetitiousness of this um, um, but I I want to thank you and I also if, if you're grieving any of you um, that you have my my sympathy and I hope that I hope that you find friends and family and the kind of people around you to help you through this hard time and and that you do find joy in the holiday season in in your own way. Um, I also just I put our business cards here. We have, like I said, there are twenty. I think I said it, twenty therapists who work in our practice in Canton and Stoughton. If you or anyone you know um, you think would benefit from some kind of counseling support, just have them call. We'd be happy happy to be helpful. Thank you very much. And thank you for participating. I appreciate every, all the openness.